The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome back to another episode of Trading Secrets. Today, you're diving into the mysterious world of poker with someone who has one of the most fascinating stories of all time, personal favorite. In fact, so fascinating that her life was produced into a big-time film featuring some of Hollywood's most famous A-listers, including Jess... Uh, oh, wow, we got some big names in here. Kevin Costner, Jeremy Strong. There are some big ones. Miss Elba. And her name is Molly Blue. And her movie is called Molly's Game. Her plan growing up wasn't to run poker games, though she actually was a very talented athlete, third in the nation for ski and training to compete at the Olympics, and she unfortunately crashed on her qualifying run. So how did she go from skiing to poker? Well, luckily, she's here to tell us the story. And of course, we're here to get into all the details about money and the whole poker industry, which I am wildly obsessed with. So Molly, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Molly and I were just talking a little bit before we got going. Molly just had her first baby. So what a huge congratulations to you. That is so exciting. Thank you. What was more time consuming? Managing a baby as your first or dealing with underground poker games and all the craziness <laughs> that went with it? Because both of them, I'm sure, were late nights and crazy times. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, they're pretty similar in terms of the hours that you keep. It's kind of a 24-7 thing without a lot of sleep. So, uh, you know, I, I had some early life training to prepare me for taking care of an infant. <laughs> I love it. That is good stuff. And one of the things, Molly, I've, I've heard you on so many different interviews and I, and a lot of people talk about, you know, your big ski accident. You knew you were going to be a skier. You wanted to be a skier. You had an accident during qualifying uh, for the Olympics and it changed your course. I don't want to get too much into detail, but what I want to know is what were some things that you did to get out of rock bottom when you thought your entire life was going in one direction and one mishap on one qualifying run completely changed your direction? Like, how did you actually propel yourself out of that rock bottom scenario? I think if you want the simple answer uh, and, and sort of the most profound thing I can speak to, it's, it's starting to exert some management over your mindset because you know, I've, I've been up, I've been down, I've, I've had a sort of like million do-overs. And the thing that got me to the finish line each time was this ability to reframe, recalibrate, you know, let, let the past go, get into the present moment and, and restart. And I think it has to do with how agile your mind is and, and what, how much agency you have over your thoughts, your actions, uh, and, and kind of turning that that around. Interesting. And so when you did turn it around, so no longer skiing anymore, it's my understanding you go to LA, you talk about the fact, you know what, it's great weather there, maybe some opportunity, but your parents didn't support that decision, did they? No. And so did they cut you off completely before, like when you made that move? Yeah. And my family, the, the kind of deal was, we'll support you for your, if you're in school, if you're not in school, then you're on your own. I decided to take a year off in between undergrad and law school. And so my parents said, you're on your own. Wow. Okay. So that's a big thing about restarting. Not only are you restarting in, uh, in a direction that's different than what you anticipated, but you're restarting in a direction that 
maybe mom and dad and family aren't like completely uh, approving of. So what was your trajectory? What did it look like for you? What was your plan when you went to LA? So I literally went to LA for a year and my intention was to be warm for a year because (laughs) I had been, uh, you know, chasing winter my whole life. I was a professional skier and I guess I just wanted to be warm. And I, and I also kind of wanted to be a kid because I had had this very regimented life. And so I went to LA for those two reasons. That's it. And then I was going to head to law school and that was the plan. And, you know, I got a million jobs in LA as you have to do when you're broke. And one of the jobs was working for this guy and he had a lot of, he had a big network and he wanted to throw a poker game and he wanted me to serve drinks at it. And I knew nothing about poker and I knew nothing about this world. And, uh, this game ended up being a game that was attended by some of the people that you see on CNBC, that you see attending the Oscars that you see, you know, like having started the most prolific tech companies in the world. It was just people that, had major influence and power in the world. And so it was, you know, when I was in my early twenties and I recognized that there was a massive opportunity there, not only to sort of have access to people with, with money and power, but also information and to build a network. And so I was very fascinated by this world, but also by the opportunity. And that's the crazy thing about poker is in one table, you could have some of the most elite in the educational world, in like leadership world, in celebrity world, in mafia world. I mean, it brings all the circles together, which is wild. And I want to get into some of those details and we will because the dollars and cents guys behind the things that Molly got into is wild and I can't wait to explore it. I want to go back just one step before because I think it's a lot more relatable in the fact that you moved to LA, you're taking a bunch of jobs. And it's my understanding, I, I heard in one interview you described that you only had seven in your savings account. So if for you was a plan, like I'm going to find someone in some capacity and build something, or were you just thinking I'll do it for a year? And if I run out of money, I'm going to go home because I think that's such a relatable thing right now that people have a little bit of savings and they're just kind of taking a shot at a city. And I'm curious what your plan was if the poker route or the introduction to that didn't work out. So I never, I was very intent on going to law school. I'd studied for really hard for the LSATs. I, you know, I'd done well on the LSATs. I had a really high GPA. You know, I was, I was all in on that. And then, you know, I, I came into this, I stumbled down this rabbit hole, if you will, and, and had this opportunity as I sought to make a, a lot of money, save a lot of money build an incredible network and then go to law school. And, and with each year that went by, I became less and less interested in, in going to law school. Makes sense. All right. So t- take me back to that moment where your boss does say, hey, we need you to run a poker game. Because to my understanding, you didn't really know much about it. And you said in a couple interviews, you're like, I put my cutest outfit on. And I was just like, we'll give it a shot. What were your expectations like? And how did the night end up your first night? Did you make some some big money, big relationships? What was it like after the first night that you were hosting or part of hosting an underground poker game? So that first night, my, my role was to serve drinks. Okay. He was like, try not to embarrass yourself and just serve drinks, you know? And so, yeah, you're right. I, I went home and I, you know, I was very curious about 
what I was going to do and and how to sort of show up and not look like a complete uh, novice. So I was Googling things about poker and I, you know, I was, it was pretty innocent. I was like, what kind of music do poker players like to listen to and what do they eat? Cause I wanted to, you know, sort of like go above and beyond if I could in places that I could. So I made this really embarrassing playlist with songs like the gambler on it. And really nice okay. moves, you know. I mean, I'm like a little kid from Loveland, Colorado. I don't know anything, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I go to Gelson's and I get this like very run of the mill, non fancy cheese plate. And yeah, put on my like my nicest dress, which was like not that nice, and showed up to this game. And then you know, as these players start to show up, and I start to realize who they are and where I am, you know, you have this like very self conscious moment of. Oh my God, I made a playlist with, with the gambler on it. Did you put crazy game of poker on that playlist yeah, or no? Oh God, no. I was like Googling like, <laughs> and it was like, you know, the cheesiest, most cliche songs and, and in walks like the head of one of the biggest investment banks in the world and Ben Affleck and, you know, like a politician that everyone knows. And, and it was, you know, you have this very self-conscious moment of, I am so small and they are so big. You know, but then that's where the shift comes in, right? Where you can go, who cares? Who cares? Like this is an opportunity. And and then at the end of the and something else, if we're talking about dollars and cents, people were tipping me in chips. And I realized at the end of the night and real quick how much I love the economics when someone is using a a, a token to, to signify money. You know, so I made like $3,000 at the end of the night for refilling diet Cokes. And plus for the six hours I was there, got to be a fly on the wall in this kind of secret clandestine underground club for masters of the universe, you know? So I was, I was in, I was so, I found it so intriguing and compelling and, and promising. And how long was this game going on before your boss said, like, I'd wanted to rope you in? Like, is this something that he had going for a long, long time? Or was this a new venture? No, this was a new, this was a new game. This, you know, they had, they were playing at each other's houses always like that, that had always existed. And then he wanted to throw the game on a weekly basis in the same location. And um, I served drinks for that game for eight months until I started my own game. Okay. I love that. And I want to get into that. One thing I got to ask you is your first night when you see the people like Ben Affleck and all them gambling and stuff, did he preface you by telling you like, there's going to be monster celebrities and the, the elite of the elite there? Did you just walk in and were like, holy shit. So he, the first night I didn't, he was just like, there's going to be a lot of like, you know, I think he said that there's just going to be a lot of big people there or something, something that wasn't totally clear. And then, you know, like a month in, he would give me the names and numbers of these people to invite, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't given access to them in the beginning. Got it. And paint the picture for me. If someone's listening at home, so they're thinking, okay, Molly was a, an assistant. The assistant says, we're going to get this poker game. She's dressed up serving drinks. And then Ben Affleck and all these people are here. What does an underground game look like? Because I think a lot of people might have a couple ideas. Someone might be thinking like this extreme, beautiful mansion. Some people might be thinking like you go into a dungeon, you knock three times. Like what is there security? Are there cameras? Are there passcodes to get in? Tell me the like setup. 
Okay. So when the game first started, it was in the basement of a very famous rock and roll club on Sunset Boulevard. Okay. Okay. Totally infamous place. There was this big security guard outside the door. The whole place is like painted black. You know, you have to go through this like back door. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it, it was like rock and roll. It wasn't glamorous or beautiful. It was grungy and, you know, seedy, even though the people that were sitting at the table were worth the, the GDP of a small country. But when I took over the game, I moved it. I want, you know, I, I changed the aesthetic a lot and I wanted it to feel like you were in a James Bond movie. Okay, so we're going to transition from the game that you were part of to your game in one second. But the game that you were just the assistant at for a minute, when those people would come in, were they just bringing cash? And what were the limits on just the game when you were not, when it wasn't Molly's game, when you were working at the other game? What did those limits look like? And, and was it cash only? Cash only. And it was a $10,000 buy-in. And I think the blinds were $25.50, but I can't remember. And are they playing no limit? Is it no limit hold'em? Is that what they're playing? Playing no limit hold'em, for sure. Okay. All right, guys, stay tuned for the recap. If you don't know the game and the recap, I'm going to tell you about the game. I'm also going to tell you about my experiences. I've played in a couple underground games, nothing like this, but we'll talk about it. Okay, so in that eight months, Molly, how much do you think you made? For that eight months, did your role change or were you just serving drinks the entire time? I was just serving drinks, but I was, you know, I was trying to figure out how to become important to these people. So, you know, I would hear somebody say, I need a reservation at this restaurant. And I knew how to, you know, from working for a a very difficult boss who was like, I don't care if you can't get a reservation at that restaurant, just get it anyway, if you want to keep your job, you know? So I had to become like creative and resourceful. So I would hear someone say that at the table, I get them a reservation. I, you know, I, memorized everyone's favorite drink order, their food order. So I would just have it for them. I tried to like become important in their lives, or I tried to solve their problems uh, when I wasn't asked to, I was trying to, you know, forge relationships. And so, you know, and then I started inviting the play, you know, reaching out to the players. And then when they were owed money or I needed to, I would collect money or I would pay the the winners. And so my role became, started to become a bit more expanded, okay, which allowed yeah. me to really cultivate these relationships and, and to start to understand who these people are and, and what matters to them. And they're just in those lessons, guys, there's so many sales and networking techniques about like how you can take a relationship and move it to the next level and make yourself so you are not expensive, right? So there are so many companies out there, you get hired, you get fired, and you're gone. But if you have those relationships, no one can take those from you. While we are free agents at work, those relationships are sticky. And that even goes for an underground game. So it's a huge takeaway that Molly just gave us. Molly, when you were working in the poker game, how much did you make in the eight months versus how much you were making as like an assistant? I was making in one night what I was making in a month. Which was around how much? Like between three to five thousand dollars. What in tips you'd be making three to five thousand dollars. Yeah. Wow, that is unbelievable. All right. Yeah. So so you're doing that for eight months. And everything I have read or seen is you actually got fired from the job. Is that right? And if so, why did you get fired? 
So my boss, I almost said his name. (laughs) (laughs) We could edit it out. We're not live. (laughs) Uh, My boss at the time was under a ton of pressure and had all these different companies. And he felt as though I was more interested in the poker game than I was in showing up and doing a great job. Uh, being his assistant. And he was absolutely right. Well, no shit. You're making one night what you're making in a month there. Yeah. But the (laughs) truth is, is that I, so he, about a couple months in, he's like, I'm not going to pay you anymore. I'm not paying you anymore a salary for being my assistant. You're getting paid by the poker game. So I was having to show up, you know, and, and work really hard at, at this office and deal with some, uh, you know, pretty sort of like, unreasonable human beings and just crazy, the the crazy antics that were down in the office. And I was doing that. And then I was also helping to run this game and he just got frustrated and he said, you're just, you're not bringing the same, you're not bringing your A game to the office. So I'm taking the poker game away from you and you're going to just come back to the office and work there full time. And I was, I thought he was bluffing. And then he had this girl reach out to me for the names and numbers of the players and I was like, I, I have to make a move. Wow. You know? Unbelievable. So is that at that point, is that when you took off from that job and started your own game? Yeah. So the next week he was going to be out of town. Okay. And so I, I love it. <laughs> I set up a game and invited all the players except for him. And I did it in a way that was sort of aligned with this vision I had of how to do these games that I, that I, I thought, you know, like this is the company that I want to create. I want to create this company that, that produces these events. And this is how I, I see it happening. You know, you walk into this room and you're like put into flow state, right? Like every, there's beautiful music and flowers. The temperature is perfect. There's scented candles. You're in the penthouse suite at, you know, the, Four Seasons in in Beverly Hills. You've got this, you know, Cuban cigars and the best scotch. And there's a whole staff of people there that know who you are and what you care about and and what you want to drink and eat. And, you know, so just like producing this incredible experience. And so that's what I did. And we also raised the stakes. Okay. From 10 to 50,000. So you couldn't walk in the door unless you bought in 50K. Right. And so were the uh, limits the same? Was it still 25, 50? No, it was 50, 100. Okay, 50, 100. Guys, if you're, if you're confused on what that means, again, I'll break that down in the recap, but stay with us here. So 50, 100, 50K to walk in the door. Did you ever at any point actually give that list of contacts to that woman who was supposed to take your spot? So you wait. <laughs> God, Molly is so smart. All right. So you wait until he's gone. You then set up this game and you're doing it at this like unbelievable place. I assume the players that came were blown away given the fact before they're sitting in like the basement of like a grungy area, yeah. literally underground. Yeah. No, the, it was, it was very well received. And then this is a great story that made it into the book, but that is, it didn't make it into the movie. And, and I just think it's an awesome story. So mm-hmm. So I have the game and, you know, there's people are kind of, most people are, are like, love it and they're into it, but there's a couple people that were like, this feels shady. You know, what about your boss? And, yeah. and, you know, I, and, and that's to be expected, right. I'm going up against the billionaire boys club and asking them to forego one of their own for some 
you know, young kid from Colorado that doesn't really know what she's doing, but most people were just really into it. And then the next, but you know, there are a couple of people that got on the phone as soon as they got home and called my boss and were like, this, this is what went down. And he calls me at five in the morning and the game had just ended, you know, maybe an hour or two ago. Mm-hmm. And he's like, get over here. And this guy's scary. Okay. Like this is a scary human being. Like everyone's afraid of him. And I go over to his house and he makes me go out and wait in the guest room, uh, in the guest house. And I'm like, he's going to kill me. Like that. I can't I, believe you went. If he said, come I here, I'd be like, fuck off. Says, I'm not I, going. I don't know why I went either, but I was just like, maybe there's a way to sort of like make peace. But he's also, I mean, also I went because I was terrified. I'm scared of them. <laughs> yeah. And so I went and he made me wait out there for a long time, long enough that my, my, I start to get in my head and I'm like, I'm freaking scared, you know? And he comes into the, into the room and he looks at me with like this scary look. And then he's like, I'm proud of you player. <laughs> it, was like, what? it was like, I had graduated because when I was working for him, when I started working for him, I was, and I still am glad that I am this person, but I was bleeding heart. You know, yeah. I was just so concerned about being kind and people pleasing and, 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 you know, like I would never imagine uh, standing up for myself, you know? And he was like, yeah. he was like, the world's going to eat you up. And so he would constantly try to pound this lesson into my head. And, and so in his mind, what I had done showed him that I had kind of like graduated, you know, that I had, that I had arrived. And I think there's a version, I I think I I kept a lot of myself, but it, it, you know, I, I learned how to stand up for myself and I learned how to, to kind of, uh, you know, be assertive and, and not be so concerned about, does everyone like me? Oh, I love that. And so yeah. once he said, once you felt like you graduated, that's, I mean, you just showing up, you got, you got, <laughs> you got more jobs than I do, but you show up and he says that, does he try and like cut a deal? Like I want 10%, no. we're going to work this together. He's literally like, congratulations, take the He's game. Like, I'll come play the next week. Wow. All right. Friends ever since. So unbelievable. That's amazing. Okay. So then you, you get the game going, you get rolling. How many people from the original game did you retain? Did you retain pretty much everyone and grow it? Or was it pretty consistent with what was before? You know, I lost a couple of people just because of the stakes. Okay. You know, considerably bigger. (laughs) Yeah. 50 K. Yeah. Wild. Okay. So you get most of the people coming back. How many tables are you operating in the new? Yeah. Spot? So, sorry. The, the smaller game was 2550. Did I say 50? Yeah. No, you said 2550. The new yeah. game was 5,100, right? Yeah. 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 And how many tables do you have in the setup? Just one. Just one. So how 10 players can play? That's it? Yeah. Except for people, 10 players is kind of packed, packs a table. So I think nine, nine was the, was the ideal number. Okay. And when you have a penthouse at four seasons, all of a sudden Ben Affleck and Dana, you know, anyway, Matt Damon, any of these guys come in, people got to start being like, what the hell's going on up there? Right? Like, well, did anybody like try and crash these games or get suspicious of what was going on? Well, that's why I always loved doing them at the, the hotels because you sort of absorb their whole infrastructure. You have people that are bringing food, you know, can run errands, you have security. I mean, it would be really, it would be hard to hold up a game in one of those hotels and, and, and get away without, 
but you know, you got to kind of, you got to walk through the door, like there's cameras everywhere. So that's what I liked about it. It was kind of like, so it was out in the open, but also helmed by housekeepers and, and people that are bringing, you know, can go run errands for you and get anything you want and, and as a built in security. So I, and it was fun. You could, you could kind of hotel hop. So one week it could be at the four seasons one week. It could be at the Beverly Hills hotel, wherever, you know, and you get, you change up the environment. And then also people don't always know where it's going to be. The element of surprise and change, I think is always really valuable when you're talking about the customer experience. Yeah, that's that's a good takeaway too. When you're texting this, when this these group of these high hope high profile people, are they on like a group text or are you calling them individual? What does the communication look like with these people that are untouchable and un like no one can get a hold of them to tell them like where the next place will be? Certainly not a group text. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, right? You don't have all these such stars on a group text. No. Is it like individual calls? Is it like Snapchats where the messages go away? How does that work? Yeah, this was before Snapchat <laughs> or Signal, which, you know, would have been a lot better for me, particularly in the end of the world. <laughs> individual, individual communication. Individual. You know, okay. I, if there's one thing I learned from running a business, from being in the world. It's like, make, try to make people feel special. Don't yeah. make them feel like, you know, you're trying to like, be efficient with your time or your money at their expense. And okay. so like, I think, you know, the name of the game is make people feel seen, heard, remembered, make them feel special, be learn how to become an excellent listener, um, an excellent observer of, of every detail. I love that. And did you ever have with that type of money, Obviously, you're doing all the things to have every detail to continue to retain and excite people. But you're talking big, big dollars. Are people playing on credit at this rate or do people actually bring the stacks in to the to the game? So the regular players started to play on credit. Okay. And who was the bank? In the early days, the bank was essentially the game. Okay. Um, so it was just like a note, like a promissory note, like a note, like I owe you this. Yeah. Just a handshake agreement. I mean, at the, you know, at the end of the night, you'd have winners and losers. And ideally you collect the money the next day and pay the winners the next day. Now, when you're playing every week for large amounts, that doesn't always work so well. Did you ever have positions where people were getting stiffed or you weren't getting paid? The LA game got stiffed, I think one or two times in, in like six years. In New York City, when I became the bank, I, I was running multiple games and I got, you know, I got stiffed a couple of times, pretty big. And w- like at that rate, are you, what do you do? You just, write the you check. just have to write it. You just have to write it off. You got to write the check. Yeah. Wow. And so when you had your first year, eight months, you're making money off tips. How are you making money when it became Molly's game? So for Seven and a half years of running these games, I made money on tips. But let me let me elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. So everyone wanted to play in these games. There were nine seats available. I was in charge of who got to play, and I was also in charge of how much credit I was extending. So winners tipped, and they tipped well because 
you know, I'm sort of the gatekeeper. I'm also the bank. And, you know, like, like I said, I I've said this before. I mean, I was making $4 million a year. (laughs) And that was off all the tips. Yeah. So on an average night of nine players with the 50 K buy-in, you're making what? 10,000 ish. Oh, at least 10, 20,000 in tips at least. At least. Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. And at what point, cause I had seen one of your interviews and when you had an actual buy-in of 250,000. So at what rate did you end up moving the buy-in stakes higher? So when I moved the game to New York city, there was th- this very famous game that, that everyone always talked about. And it was these wall street billionaires and like foreign billionaires that would play together and the buy-in was 250, 250,000. And they would play not only no limit hold'em, they would play PLO, five card stud no limit, which if you know anything about that, mm-hmm. is just an insane game. And so I kind of tracked those people down and and took over and created a game around those economics, which grew bigger and bigger. And then we talk about, you know, I we can talk about the the hundred million dollar loss and 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 that's where that game went essentially is to, to become a billionaire's game and people winning and losing, you know, sometimes a hundred million dollars. The, the guy that lost a hundred million dollars went down over a billion. So um, is a, Oh my God. So a hundred million dollars, is that the largest loss you've ever seen at yeah. one table one time? Yes. And how much did he lose in total? A hundred million dollars. And then you said he went down to a oh, billion. So then I heard, cause unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, soon after that, I got taken out of, the, of running these games. They kept playing. And about a year after that, I heard that that guy had lost a billion dollars total in the games. But then more recently, I heard that he was up. So, wow, the roller coaster up and down. Was there ever a concern of cheating? I mean, you're talking massive, massive dollars. And sleight of hand and cheating and collusion is a big thing in these games. Did you guys ever catch anyone cheating? Yeah, absolutely. And what do you, how does that work? You kicked out? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and try to get them to pay the money back, try to, to come up with a, a dollar value. How is the safety is is the safety and security of these situations? Is it almost policed by the fact that it's not Molly running it? It's the fact you're sitting across from the table of some of the most powerful humans in the world. Yeah, absolutely. So stiffing this game would be both social and career suicide, and that was what kept me safe. Also, another thing that kept me safe, safe-ish, in terms of not getting stiffed or having recourse to to collect was that especially by the time I got to New York and I was I had become the bank and I was guaranteeing these games and my like an MDB Inc check was as good as cash in the poker world in in New York City there weren't any other games like the one that I was that I was throwing there weren't any games where you could sit next to somebody and walk out having started a hedge fund together or done a movie together where there were no pros and all action and you could walk in with nothing and leave with a $5 million check. You know, it, it didn't exist. And so people wanted to play and they wanted to come back. And they knew even if they had lost a lot of money, 
there wasn't really any other games around town in which they would be able to to win that money back in, in such a setting. They'd have to play with pros or they'd have to deal with rakes or they'd have to deal with the game runner also playing with them at the table and being shady. And, you know, like it was just a totally different environment. It was like, it was like a Vegas. It was like a wind casino in, in the middle of New York city. Unbelievable. At the, at the highest rate of this game, do you have any recollection of like the largest tip you ever received where you're just like, no way this just happened. You know, the money all became like, so I went from making nothing to a lot and, and it kept escalating, going up and up. And so, I mean, I, you know, there, there were many nights where it was like 150,000. Wow. Now in this lifestyle, this is more of like theory, but and, and motivational help or just like how you stay grounded when you're seeing all this and you're making all this money and you're working these late hours, how are you like not starting to get enticed with the lifestyle you've seen from them? How are you staying grounded and, and still sticking to the business and the economics and not getting caught up in all this wild freaking world that you're getting exposure to? That's an excellent question. And so for my time in LA, I stayed very grounded, very disciplined. And for the first half a year in New York city, but then something changed, something flipped. And I, I, you know, it's not an overnight thing. It never is. You start to drink a little bit more here, take some pills or do some drugs to stay up so that you can, you know, stay up for the, the games, maybe start betting on some football games uh, you know, and lack of sleep, a little more drugs, a couple more games, you know, and it gets, it gets, I, I, and then you find yourself or I found myself waking up and just kind of not knowing who I am anymore and making some really bad, reckless decisions. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so in that moment, like, what are things that you did? Because I know you've opened up about prior drug addiction when you were at those points. What are some things you did to, like, get yourself back to the Molly you knew? Well, it really took my whole entire world falling apart. That was this sort of slow, catastrophic burn of getting assaulted by someone from the mob because I didn't want to go into business with them and having a gun in my mouth and getting beaten up and, you know, having that person tell me like, we know where your family lives. And, and then the feds raiding one of my game and the, the government seizing all of my assets, like logging into my account and seeing that my account balance was negative $9,999,099. And then two years later, getting arrested in the middle of the night by 17 FBI agents with machine guns and thrown into a really serious indictment. And then finding myself a couple years later, 35 years old, millions of dollars in debt, using drugs and alcohol again, a social pariah, convicted felon. And it was like, in that moment, it was so dire and so dark and so scary that I had to get really damn serious about this, putting my life back together. And, and really looking at myself and my choices and my, you know, where I was and, and doing some real work first on the inside. And then, you know, having to make some moves to, to put myself in a position where I wasn't going to be broke living with my mom for the rest of my life. 
Do you, when you look back at that, do you think that there's anything that realistically you would have adjusted or do you think it would have taken all that happening to break up this unbelievable thing that you've started? It would have taken all that. And, you know, it's interesting because I've had a lot of time to think about it and talk about it. It wasn't necessarily the money or the power or the, the adrenaline. It was growing up in this very high achieving family. My brother, uh, my youngest brother, was number one in the world at 18 in mobile skiing, three-time world champ, two-time Olympian, and then went on to play in the NFL and then start and sell a software company. My middle brother, Harvard-educated cardiothoracic surgeon at Massachusetts General, growing up with these two brothers whose skill set were just so defined early on at a young age and really wanting a seat at that table and wanting to feel like someone and wanting yeah. to have this big life like I felt that they had and finding it through this very bizarre uh, set of circumstances. But that's what I was holding on to because that game and, and that position that I was in and what I had built made me feel like somebody. Did they have any idea or inclination? Did your family know at the level of what was going on? Oh, you know, I, I gave them the PG-13 version yeah. and I and I could be pretty damn convincing, but they, they started to see, you know, and, and I come from really reasonable people, you know, so, yeah. and people that it's not just about, can you go out and make like millions of dollars? It's like, what are you doing of substance in the world, you know? Yeah. And what are you doing that creates impact, you know, or, or that's sustainable or that's reasonable. And so, you know, they, they certainly weren't, my dad used to write me handwritten letters every year mm-hmm. telling me this, this cannot end well. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know? I think what you had dealt with, especially when you correlate it back to like a competition thing amongst siblings or family members or trying to belong at the table is something that so many people can relate to. Knowing what you know now about your career and everything you did to kind of earn that seat at the table, what advice would you give to someone that also is feeling that rat race in whatever capacity it is that they're feeling it? You know, I was surrounded by some of the most intimately surrounded, good friends with some of the most famous, some of the richest, some of the most powerful people in the world. And they didn't have the thing that you think that they would have. They were not content. They were not at peace. They, most of them were not happy. I don't know if, have you ever read that book? This is the psychology of money. I actually haven't, but I can put it on my list. Is it so good? Okay. Psychology of money. It's going next on my list. Yeah. And there's this story in it and I'm going to mess every detail up because I haven't slept for two months because I'm an infant, but I'm going (laughs) to give it your best swing though. You're going to get the gist of it. Okay. I love it. He tells a story in the book about uh, Joseph Heller, who is the author of Catch 22. He's a, he's a very prolific author. Yeah. And he's at some party with somebody in finance. Okay. And some, one of the guys who's hosting the party's friends comes up and says, Joseph, how do you, how does it make you feel that so-and-so just made in one day in the market, what you've made your whole life from selling these books? And Joseph Heller said, well, I have one thing that he'll never have. And the guy said, what? And he said, enough. Ooh, you know? that gave me goosebumps. Right. And, yeah. and so 
what I found is that success and, and peace and happiness and fulfillment is first and foremost an inside job. In my experience, it's never obtained by what you accomplish, how many zeros are in your bank account. Most of the time, that creates this need for more. And I am, I'll never stop being ambitious or wanting to you know, make enough money to have a good life or to go for wins or go for big dreams. I, I think all those things are very important. But I think there's there's a fundamental work that human beings need to do on themselves before they can even start to enjoy that. And the people that I've known in my life that I've seen in my life that enjoy their life the most aren't the richest or the most famous or the most powerful. There are people that know this, that know that, you know, there's, there's a path to happiness and it's, and it's not by like the, by the rat race. It's being good to people. It's, it's starting to like, you know, sort of like it's, it's making sure that you have integrity or if you, if, if you're, if you're, if you fall from integrity that you try to get it back, you know, and, and it's, it's starting to appreciate, you know, and live in gratitude for the things you have and not always thinking you need more and more and more. And, you know, I don't know, if at 25, someone told me what I'm saying right now, if it would have resonated, I probably wouldn't have believed it was the truth. I believed that those people that lived in those mansions and had all that were, were living the best lives of people on earth. And, and now I know it's not true. I know without a doubt, it's not true. And in a way that totally liberates you, you know? Yeah. I mean, that is liberating because you've seen and heard conversations and had really good relationships with people that... It, it, have achieved what some people couldn't technically on paper achieve over like 20 lifetimes, no matter how fast they were running the rat race to only know that for most of them got there and it was, uh, it was not nearly as fulfilling and was as very empty as you had just made it out to say, to say it's like, that's such a good lesson for all of us, uh, to listen to, uh, Molly, we are wrapping up here, but one thing I, I want to make sure I circle back to, and, and we, we talked through is that you talked about that rock bottom. What was it inevitably? that got the FBI storming your apartment? Like, what is it that broke the game up? Was it the multiple of some of those small things happening or was there one big event that demolished the game? So the games got really big and I was running these games, obviously without a gambling license and everybody kind of knew about them. And the reason that I felt confident running these games and like it wasn't going to end the way it ended is because there's a federal statute called running an illegal gambling business, which is ultimately what I got indicted on. And the language in that statute is you aren't allowed to run games for profit. And these are games of chance. So blackjack, you know, roll the dice, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Poker is a game of skill. And that had always been the argument that had kept poker out of this charge and kept poker at worst as a misdemeanor charge. So that changed in New York City. A new precedent was set. Then I let, let, unbeknownst to me, some guys start playing that had alleged ties to the Russian mob. Uh, at first, when you look at them, you would have thought that, I mean, these were like Ivy League educated people. Wow, that's wild. And then 
the last thing that happened was what, where it was my fault. I started taking a rake in the last eight months of, of running these games. I, you know, I'm, I'm very forthcoming about the fact that I was getting sloppy and mm-hmm. not, not doing this as well as I should have. And my debt sheet was getting bigger. And I started taking a rake at games where I was more exposed and they had thrown a confidential informant into the game who tracked yeah. that. And that was that. Oh, and so I, I don't know if this is public or not. And if you can, can't share, it's fine. But what did, was the end up like, what was the price that you had to pay for this? Like how much money did they seize and how much money did they find me and stuff? Yeah. Like what was the total repercussions? Like, was there jail time? Was it big fees? Oh, was it? Yeah. Like- well, the, the feds kept all my money that they seized. Wow. That's a forfeiture. I was fined a couple hundred grand uh, restitution. I couldn't collect the two and a half million dollars that was owed to me on the street. I did not have to go to jail, but everyone thought I was going to. And, you know, I was given an opportunity by the prosecutors if I was willing to wear a wire and try to get information for the prosecutors about, namely, the politicians and the people from Wall Street and the celebrities, they would have given all my money back and they would have given me a deferred prosecution. I ultimately ended up not taking that deal because it didn't feel right. You know, I had to really look when I got honest, you know, that, that moment, I told you about that reckoning moment where I looked at my life and I was as rock bottom as rock bottom gets. I knew in that moment that the way back had to be a return to these sort of core values that I was raised with and, and a, a real honest look at who, who I was in the world. And what, when I, what I had to digest was the position I was in was a hundred percent my fault. And taking that responsibility was like the first step to, to moving forward. And so when the prosecutors came to me and they're like, if you try to, you know, if you get us info on these people, you can, you can be let off the hook. That wasn't aligned with, with that sort of reckoning moment I had, you know, Mm -hmm. because this was my fault. I had, and I had all the opportunities in the world. You know, I grew up privileged and, and with, with parents who would support my dreams. And, you know, this is what I chose to do for better or worse. And I think it's really important to accept that responsibility to take to, but, and, and to stand up for your consequences, but to find a way to forgive yourself as well. And, and so, you know, I didn't have to go to prison, but I'm a convicted felon for life. You know, unless I, I, one of these presidents wants to pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day. All right. We got to end with a trading secret, uh, Molly, one that someone couldn't learn in a classroom about financial uh, management or career navigation. Before we do one question, just off the cuff, you just said it and you even said it with a little smile on your face. Like it is what it is shit, but like convicted felon dealing with some of the biggest and brightest and most, most wealthy in the entire planet to having a gun shoved down your throat by people in the mafia. At this point, does like anything phase you? Like, are you, do you, do you get rattled? Like, I'm like, this is like the most badass girl on the planet. <laughs> does anything phase you at this point? Or is there like PTSD that you have to deal with? Or are you just like untouchable now? No, I'm never... Of course, you're never untouchable. I don't think it takes a lot to phase me, but this little girl, my, my, my daughter, who's eight weeks old, 
does a good job. (laughs) (laughs) She does it. I love it. I don't think I'm afraid of anyone, but I'm a little afraid of her. (laughs) Yeah. Well, she's got, she's got some big shoes to fill where I want to know your trading secret before I do. I do also want to give you the opportunity to just tell us a little bit about like what's next for you. So if you've done so much, you've written an unbelievable book, you have a movie about yourself. It sounds like, and, and tell me financially, it sounds like you kind of had to reset at zero, but what's next? Oh, just, I was millions of dollars in debt. Not so in debt. So not even at zero, you had to actually pay back money to the government, to the government, I assume. Legal fees and and legal fees. Yeah. Have you gotten out of that debt yet? I'm very close. Let's go. We love that. We love that. (laughs) Yeah. What a journey. And what is next for you? And then tell me what is on your radar. Yeah. So, um, I'm doing a couple things. I'm writing my second book and the second book is really about this cultivation of inner power that I think allows us to stand up and, and succeed no matter what life throws at us. And I don't think anyone escapes, uh, life throwing some, some hard stuff at us. So I think being able to cultivate this power and, and exert it in the world is super important. And it's everything I learned about that. I am doing a docu-series with Vice, kind of on the story behind Molly's game and also this redemption story of, of how you pick up from rock bottom and, and you know, build, build back. And then I'm doing a really fun podcast that I'm having a great time with right now. It's called Torched. I'm doing it with Stitcher and Sirius XM and Film Nation. And we're telling stories of Olympic scandals and controversies. And, you know, it's just endlessly fascinating to talk to people who have been on those extreme world stages with the stakes so high and find out why they made choices that they did and find out the backstory and, and the causes and conditions, you know? And so that is, that's out now. And that's really fun. And we're just telling great stories and, and in, a, in a really fascinating world. Amazing. I love it. Well, it's so cool to see where you've gone, where you've been, and where you're going. Really amazing. Uh, Molly, if you could leave our listeners with one trading secret, one they can't find in a textbook, or learn in a classroom about financial management, career navigation that can only come from you, what would your trading secret be? You know, I'm going to have to throw it back to something that I you know, keep coming back to, and that is uh, the importance of disciplining your own mind. And I don't think that that is a natural state for human beings. I think we are naturally fear prone, ego prone, uh, very susceptible to greed. And those are the conditions that I've seen uh, result in financial destruction or prevent people from where they want to be with their finances. And a great, incredible tool for starting to discipline your mind and find that you know, that calm place in the chaos is meditation and there's real science to back it up. There's real psychology to back it up. And it's, it's, it's my secret, you know, because if you can teach yourself to be the, you know, the most rational and and fearless person in the room, who's not being, whose mind is not being polluted by fear or ego or greed, or what is everyone else thinking of me? I think you're downright dangerous in business and finance and, and in life. So that's, that's what I would have to say. I love it. Mental discipline and meditation. 
Molly, I could literally talk to you for four <laughs> days straight, but I got to cut it off because I know you have a daughter and other big things to achieve. Um, but thank you so much for your time. If you guys uh, check out Molly's podcast, check out when will the book be out? Do you know yet? I would say probably 12 months. Probably okay. a year. So keep an eye on that 2023. And then my, if people want to come follow you on social media and stuff, what's your handle? It's I'm Molly Bloom. I am Molly Bloom. Awesome. Well, Molly, thank you so much for your time telling us sides of your story we haven't heard and trading all the secrets from a world full of secrets. We appreciate you coming on today. Ding, ding, ding. We are closing in the bell to the Molly Bloom episode, one of my favorite episodes that I've ever had the opportunity to interview. I mean, that was just unbelievable. I was so intrigued. Could have talked to her for three hours. Here's something I got for you guys. I'm curious. Do you have any interest in me either doing a tutorial with video or over the podcast of stuff on gambling? And so like my question is like learning how to play poker, learning how to play blackjack, learning how to make sports bets. It's very relevant today with it being legalized in many states. My question for you is, do you have any interest in that? If you do, please go give us five stars and just let us know in the comments that you have interest. I saw Jacqueline Snow. She just gave us a great review. Uh, oh, La La Lane gave us a great review. Um, 19 Annie has given us some really good feedback too. So if you have feedback, give it to us. Let us know if you want a gambling tutorial, but remember to give us five stars. That being said, I got the Curious Canadian with me and David. As you know, I was in Tulum that I just landed in New York City for this ranch water event. And as I'm walking to the ranch water event, which by the way, Ryan Bingham from Yellowstone was playing. What a legend. We're going to get him on the podcast. I come across this booth, David, and I don't know if you remember, but it was almost four years ago to the day. I stopped. I stared at the booth. I took a video of the booth. And this was a booth you and I were in right after I got off the bachelorette. We were in this booth with Colton, with, with uh, who else? Uh, Dean, yourself, some of my other buddies. Actually, a girl was there that later met one of my buddies at the next bar we went to, and they're now engaged. I was just having the ultimate throwback session walking by this. Do you remember that, David? How could I not? It's the standard <laughs> bingo uh, at the standard hotel in New York City in the meatpacking area. And my God, was that a time. Mm. Um, probably one of, to be honest, the most unforgettable days that I think we'll ever have together because it was action-packed. And if you haven't been to standard bingo, go and get the big long straws and drink out of the fishbowl drink and you won't regret it. Do they still do that? I think so. Right, every it's like a thing on Sundays. I think it's like a Sunday thing. Okay, Evan is with me right now, our big producer and talent booker, and he just gave me the thumbs up that they do it. We need to roll it back. I'm gonna play you a clip, David. This was from the night four years ago of us. We were, you you might have to you might have to play the click because I think I we were, we were booth dancing. I don't know everyone who's listening has booth danced before. Yeah. You have we're at like a bar or restaurant yeah. and you're in the booth and a song comes on. You're just like booth dancing. Yeah, we were booth dancing hard that night. By the way, this is summer of 2018 and we're singing Christmas songs. Just absolute blitz. <laughs> All right, enough of that. I just enough had that memory. That. I had to get it out. That's the beauty of these recaps. Sometimes we get off course. But David, kick it to me. You listen to the episode. I'm curious where you was blown away. 
as I was. What's your takeaway? Where do you want to start the recap? Yeah, I, I got to say it was probably the first podcast that we've done that about the 20 to 45 minute mark, it felt as if I was like listening to a movie. Um, (laughs) It was like an edge of your seat thriller. Um, It was absolutely incredible. Can't imagine some of the life experiences that, that she had and, and obviously that she touched on. I thought it was an action thriller esque uh, podcast with some really important takeaways from uh, entrepreneurship and do's and don'ts in in some industries. Yeah, when I think about when people ask me about the podcast, like suppose I'm at like a happy hour or something, I'll always tell them what we do, and then I'll list off a bunch of episodes. I'll think like Girl with No Job, A Rod, Kevin O'Leary, Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, I think Lindsay Arnold from Dance with the Stars. I think of like some of these uh, people that we've had on that like really stick with me. I might start leading off with this one. That's how. Uh, it, 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 impressionable Molly, her story and everything she brought to the table was to me. Like this was unbelievable in my opinion. I couldn't agree more. Uh, it, it definitely is one to remember as her Netflix movie is uh, Molly's game. But speaking of Molly's game, it's a poker game. You said every time you mention in episodes that we'll touch on the recap, it's my duty to make sure that we do touch it on the recap. So we know you're a big poker player. I, I've played some poker myself. So we're going to touch on some one-on-one poker things, just like we would investing or anything else that comes in an episode. So I want you to tell the people, we're going to go four items here. The first item is a buy-in. You talked about a 10K buy-in in the first games that she was a bartender at. And then when she started her own games, it went up to a 50K buy-in. Tell the people what a buy-in means. Okay, so the buy-in is how much cash you are giving the either casino or host, which was Molly, And that is what you are putting on your table and in return getting in chips. And so there's two ways of buy-ins. There's a cash buy-in or a tournament buy-in. If it's a tournament buy-in, and let's say it's 50K, you spend 50K, you get chips, and every single person buys in 50K. And the winnings are given to like the top places based on how much money's in the pot. Now, what she was playing was cash games. So you start at the table with 50K. And throughout the night, you can continue to reload. Reload means buy back in. So I could buy in to sit at the table 50K in cash. I could lose it in the first 10 minutes, rebuy another 50K, rebuy another 100K. Now, what they'll do with these games too is when there's more money on the table, suppose there's a million dollars on the poker table and it's two hours into the night and I lose my 50K. I'm not going to buy in 50K anymore because everyone has me outstacked, right? So that means each player has much more than 50K. So therefore, they have a big advantage. So therefore, usually they'll make rules at the house. You can rebuy in for even more. And so that's how if you have a 50K buy-in with eight seats, that's $400,000. You know that after like three hours, there's going to be well over a million dollars on that table with rebuys. That's how shit gets out of hand quick. Yeah. Uh, quick poker uh, unwritten rule. If I buy in for 50K and let's say I win a 250K hand in the first hand, can I just get up and leave? Or is there like, no, you got to sit there for 45 or like, is it is it bad poker etiquette to get up and leave after winning a monster hand? A hit and run is terrible poker etiquette. If someone chooses to do it, I'm sure she would never invite them back. And what they usually do is, I'm sure she has this, is there's some type of rule that you have to put in place with a time limit of how long you'll stay. I would assume at this dollar amount, you would have to call one hour. So one hour would mean I win a big pot, Molly, one hour. And in one hour from what I call it, I can then leave and no one at the table can say no. But it's very, very bad etiquette to hit and run. 
Okay, moving on to the blinds. She said her first game was 25-50. She moved up to 50-100. What does a blind mean? I think this is probably the most confusing part for people to understand when they first start playing poker. Yeah, so the the biggest breakdown with blind is it is kind of what it says. So blind, what is it? blind? You can't see. So you're putting in money before the hand without seeing what your cards are. So if you have eight people at a table in Texas Hold'em, two people, only two of the eight have to actually put money in before they get their cards. There's a small blind and a big blind. Small blind, it looked like she would toss, said 2550 or 5100. So that means before player one sees his cards, he's got to put in $50. The guy to the right or girl to the right has to put in $100. So that's the big blind, small blind, big blind. Cards are dealt. It will then go to the next player. So the person sitting next to the big blind. So the $100 is in. The person sitting next to that person has put no money in. They have their cards. They now have the option to match the $100 to stay in, fold, or go above the $100. So you know before cards are even dealt, there's 150. If every single person folds on the table and no one wants to play, there's still $150 at the table. So it sets the minimum for what will be in the pot. The pot is the total money that's being played for that hand. And $150 as a starting point is very, very high. Like these, I want you to say 25, 50 stakes are stakes you you likely can rarely find at a casino anywhere. And if you can find it, you know, it's they'll have one table. $5,100 stakes are almost impossible. So when she says these games are unheard of, it's almost impossible, even if you're a pro, to find limits like this. And I think if you, not to get into it too much, but blind positioning and seats and position strategy is probably one of the most important things in terms of being a successful poker player and knowing how to navigate those positions. Yes. Set two, two quick things, because I want to get to more of the episode. No limit and rake. I think no limit is fairly self-explanatory, so hit that. And then she made a comment that she said she didn't take a rake, which is rare, because that's usually how people make money off their poker games, like an establishment. So touch on no limit and rake really Okay, quick. so there's games that are limit games and no limit games. A limit games means you can only bet up to how much is in that pot for that hand. So if there's $150 in that pot, my bet can only be $150. A no limit game means that my bet can be any amount up to how much I have in front of me. So it would be pretty stupid to do it. But if there's $200 in the pot and I have 200,000 in chips in front of me, I could say all in. So you can bet any amount up to the amount that you have in front of you. That's no limit. The rake, we've already talked about the pot is. So the rake is where the dealer or the house will take a small percentage of what the total pot is for every hand played. So if there's the pot is $15,000, people are betting, right? This is one hand. At the end of the rake, based on what the rake is, Molly would take, I'm making this up because I don't know the exact number, but Molly would take $500 of that and it would go in her little kitty. And then whoever won that hand gets the 14, 5,000. And she's doing that every single hand. So she's now making money on every single pot. She's taking a small percentage, putting in her kitty, and she's getting tipped out. And she was making money as a banker. So once she had her own game, she was bringing in tons of sources of revenue. And the fact, like she is the most badass chick ever. When she said that 
she kind of like used her leverage to force people to tip her. Like, you want to get invited back? You're going to tip me. Yeah. So on top of it, she's making monster tips because people know they want to come back, probably just to sit next to freaking Ben Affleck. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just, I mean, genius. I, I love she, her attitude, man. She is amazing. Well, to hear that you say that and then flash back to the start of the episode when she's, she said she was Googling poker songs uh, to put on a playlist and uh, trying to like find an edge. And then here she is a couple years later running her own massive games in New York City, changing the game and, and using her leverage to get people to tip them. It's just, and you mentioned Ben Affleck's name. I, I want to put it out there. I did my own research on okay. some of this. It wasn't just Ben Affleck. There's Here's some names that were participating in these games. Leo DiCaprio, ever heard of him? Uh, <laughs> Macaulay Culkin, Matt Damon, our boy and Trading Secrets guest A-Rod. Wow. Wish we knew that. Uh, Nelly, Mary Kate, and Ashley Olsen. What? Uh, not so, not so innocent anymore. Uh, and then pro pro poker players such as Phil Ivy. So I'm surprised uh, they let Phil Ivy play because for anyone that doesn't know, they call him the Tiger yeah. Woods of poker because literally him and him and Tiger look almost identical. It's crazy, but I'm yeah. surprised they would let the pro play because that's what she was saying. The pros couldn't play, but I bet you some of those guys just for ego wanted one night for the pro to play to see if they can beat them, just to say they right? beat it's one like of the best thrill. pros. It's like a, yeah. It's like if I could golf with Tiger Woods and, and bet him money, I would just to see how bad I get my ass kicked. Yeah, maybe one stroke, your one putt, you beat him, and you could tell everyone for the rest of life you you outputted exactly. Tiger Woods at one hole. Um, the exactly. one thing I don't want to overlook, and I think it's a crazy parallel to draw, but you're right. Like she just went in blind to this, not knowing shit about it, didn't know anything, was putting crazy game of poker on playlists, and obviously was a sponge, learned it, loved it, implemented it herself. My only takeaway to that to anyone listening is. Give things a shot. Like literally within two, three years, she has the most, you know, I'm not saying go do illegal shit, but it's just another example of someone taking a shot at something they don't know anything about and becoming so big with it. They have, you know, a hundred FBI agents taking them down. So like you can master anything at any point. I'm saying do it legally, but just another wild takeaway. Well, I think just it, the beauty of this podcast is anything, any guests we have, there's tangible takeaways. Just her going in and be like, hey, I'm going to research poker things before I bartend the event. And she said, make people feel special. Don't make your time or money be efficient at their expense. Make them see, make them feel seen, heard, and remembered. I thought that was like a huge, huge takeaway. Yeah. I, I loved uh, your attitude. I think super smart. I mean, super, super brilliant thing. The other thing too, David, I do remember... I, let's see if you let's see if you did your research. What is one thing I said I got to talk about in the recap during the show? Um, probably I'm gonna say, uh, well, I mean you're a poker guy and you've played poker games before, so I'm gonna take a stab and say uh, a little bit of your poker experiences you in the underground it. CD scene in the basement in probably yes. Seattle. So I've played in the basement all over. I've played in New York. I've played in Rochester. Dude, I've played in Rochester. There's a game in Rochester. Yeah. There's two, two, three games in Rochester. And it's the craziest thing because what happens is you first have to be able, like they have to do background checks on you. How they'll do background checks usually is your Facebook or Instagram just to make sure you're like legit. And then you'll, you got to bring cash and you'll knock on one door. Then you, they close that door and you'll go in a little hallway and there's another locked door. So it's a double locked door to reduce like crime. Then they bring in, there's cameras everywhere, a second door. Then they lock that door. Then you get in. And once you're in, you're in. And what's interesting is, like I said at this table, dude, obviously there were, when I was playing, there weren't, the stakes weren't that. I think we were playing either uh, two five or five ten to give people an idea. And the thing is, is that 
at that table, it's the wildest thing. I remember there was partner from law, there's a partner from a couple law firms there, partner from a couple CPA firms there. There were two or three drug dealers there. I was like a banker. It, it was the most, dude, it was the most wild group of people I've ever sat at one table with in my life. And that's kind of the beauty of poker. And so it was, it's just a wild, wild experience playing in underground games. I loved it. I love, dude, I would sit there. This is when I was getting my MBA. So, I'd work all day, get my MBA. I would go to the game at like 11 p.m. And I would take some of my textbooks because you're supposed to be patient with the game. I would be doing research on like MBA stuff, studying while playing the game and just listening to all these conversations. Crazy. That's wild. What? So what if I have you over for like $100 buy-in one-two blind poker game, is that like... What, where do we draw the line with like illegal where the feds are going to come after you and illegal like, oh, I'm just playing poker with my buddies in the basement. Oh, dude, it. one, two, 100. They're not coming after anything. It's kind of like the Doug podcast where Doug was like, yeah, they don't really want the guy buying the joint. They don't even want the guy selling the joint. They want the guy that's supplying all the big, the weed. So I think if you have a consistent game, you're hosting a game, you're hosting a game three, four days a week, unless you have cops in your back pocket, which a lot of them do. I think the game I played at did. You're not going to, you're, 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 you're not going to get busted, I don't think. But if you're doing like, think about what she's doing, man. Of course she's going to get busted. It's huge dollars. It's, I don't know. I didn't even ask about the tax situation with the most powerful humans in the world. And didn't you, isn't this interesting? Even when they caught her running the biggest game, probably United States, they still didn't even really care too much about her. They were more interested yeah. in getting her wired so they can get the biggest people in the world that played at the games. Like I found that fascinating. It's always a bigger fish. And the it's fact always she, a bigger dude, fish. what is your take on, I know we're running late in this, this recap, but what is your take on the fact that she didn't get wired? Like, what's your opinion on that? Because she's still, still, still to this day, she's done the book. She's done the, the Netflix show. She's working at, she's sold an unbelievable story. She's everywhere. And she still said she's in debt to the government for what she owes back. What's your take on the fact she could have been wired got some people in trouble and therefore been debt free. I just think she's like a, almost like an OG hustler in that sense. Like I think that the only reason she got to place that she did is for that same mindset that she refused to wear a wire. Like, I just think she was always about providing a service and she knows that she couldn't have done it without people trusting her. And I just think that, I don't know, maybe at the end of it, when it was time to like, you know, take care of herself and maybe throw some other people under the bus, like at the end of the day, she knows what she, she knows what she did and she couldn't have done it without the people. And um, at the end of the day, she was providing the service and they were taking advantage of it. So there's, it's, it's, it was her, it was her fault for providing the service. So why? All right, let me why, cut I you mean, off it's, here. It's, let me it's, cut it's, you off here. Right here. Yeah. You're in the same situation. Yeah. You're 3 million in debt. Yeah, they tell you wear a wire. Your re- reduction of sentence is lower, and you don't have any money owed. Are you doing it? I mean, I'm not going to sound like a snitch here, but yeah, probably. Yeah, I'm doing it too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I give her. It's another reason why I give because yeah, I also woman's... don't owe anything to any of those people. That's why like, I'm saying. I provided them a service. Every, yeah. you, you're the one who's not getting tapped and 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 getting a gun in your mouth. And, and I, I'm sorry, but I'm, like I'm complying. I've had some pretty, I've had some pretty bad like hangover anxieties in, in my day. Yeah. The anxiety that I got. When she said she logged onto her bank account and she had negative nine million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine dollars, I was like, I, my hands started sweating. I was thinking about that too. The scaries, like the smallest things, I get the scaries, right? Like just like, oh my god, I can't, you know? How, how she? She's just like not phased by anything. 
That's why I said I, mean, I think after the, I don't know if I said this during recording or after. I think it was during. Like, are you phased by anything? Like, does anything? You did. Yeah, you it? said that. Oh, she's like my kid. I'm like, okay, that's <laughs> answer. Okay, that's great. Yeah, it really makes me and you really uh, looking forward to uh, being a parent one day. She's, uh, she's a better woman and better person than you and I because we both would have snitched. Oh, well, I just, I, to have like a live stream of her life in between. You know, like she's very open about her drug and alcohol use yeah, and, and getting yeah. shaken down by the mob and her family threatened. And, um, you know, another thing we need to talk about seizing control of their assets. It's just crazy. Like, it's the just crazy. Gun in the mouth the, from the mob, gun in the mouth with no protection. I can't wait. I can't wait for the sizzle clip that we'll put on on social of you, your facial reaction when she said, I got a gun in my mouth. I, I thought your jaw actually hit I need floor. to have like a drink with her and talk to her because I want to be like, okay, you definitely worked with the mob. Like you had to have protection. You had to. Okay, David, just like the episode, I could have talked to her for another four yeah. hours. Just like the recap, I could talk to you about this for another eight hours, but I know that's not what all of our listeners want. So it's about the listeners. Guys, we appreciate all your feedback. Please, five stars, five stars, five stars. Put your IG handle, your name, uh, should we do more of this? Should we not do more of this? Uh, do we need, do you want interested in actual video footage of doing these tutorials on gambling? Give us feedback. David, before I close out, anything else from your end? No, it was such a good, I haven't even seen Molly's game on Netflix. I have. And so that's what I'm doing tonight. I'm, I'm going and watching Molly's game on Netflix. If you have not watched Molly's game, I'm telling you it's an hour and a half well spent and it's perfect for anyone. Like it's a great, go couple and watch a grab a popcorn and watch a movie. You'll all enjoy it. Um, David, great recap, great research. Love the breakdown. Thank you for being here with me today. It's good to be back in New York, New York. I miss those days of bingo. Bingo. We'll have to roll them back. And um, yes, we have some really, really good guests coming. So continue to share the pod, continue to subscribe to the pod. Please make sure to give us five stars and thank you for tuning into another episode of trading secrets. One you can't afford to miss, or at least hopefully you can't afford to miss.